I'm Coach Seb, and this is Running New Mexico. All right, joining me today, I have Rick Rojas. He is a former Los Alamos grad, uh, Harvard grad, won the first Boulder to Boulder uh, run, uh, has competed in two Olympic trials, and is a coach for Rick Rojas Running out in Boulder. So thank you for joining me today. Absolutely. My pleasure. So my first question is, how did you get into running? Well, you know, I was probably like uh, thousands of uh, kids in, in uh, sports. And, you know, we just did everything uh, growing up in Los Alamos. So every, but everything there was right at your fingertips. You know, basketball, we played YMCA basketball. We played Little League baseball. Uh, we did all the school sports. We did track in middle school or junior high at the time. We did football, basketball, baseball, every sport, tennis, every sport that we were able to do, uh, we participated in and my parents supported that so from little league all the way through high school i was able to try everything and you know i was i was a decent athlete not great but i liked it i liked i had fun playing um and about uh, my sophomore year because at the time uh high school was only three years in, in in new mexico so we had sophomore junior and senior years so my sophomore year, I decided I'm not playing football anymore because I played football in junior high. I'm going to go out for cross country. And you know, I didn't even know what it was, but I'm going out for cross country. <laughs> and so <laughs> I went out I went out for cross country and I ended up being, you know, the number one man uh, at Los Alamos. Uh, and we had some pretty good runners, you know, nobody great, uh, but some pretty good runners. And I uh, ran cross country and track. Uh, outdoor track, and I played my sophomore year. Still played basketball that year. That was the last year I played basketball, and uh, you know I was starting on the the sophomore team. Basically, that's all I can say. But um, I finished, I think, like seventh or eighth at the district cross country meet my sophomore year. So I thought, okay, I'm going to stick with this. I'm quitting every all the other sports, baseball. I'm not going to do anything but but run track now, and run cross country. So my sophomore year, I went out for track. And I improved quite a bit from from my fall season in cross country through my outdoor season, even though I didn't do any training, uh, you know, over the winter time. I ended up running like a four. My sophomore year, I ran four twenty three, and I actually ran that in Los Alamos. I ran four twenty three at Los Alamos. Wow! And I ran uh, like one fifty nine or two flat or something like that, eight hundred eighty yards. So it was a mile. I ran four twenty three for a mile, and I ran. Uh, like two flat for 880 yards. And I finished at state that year. I finished third in the 800 and second in the, um, in the mile. And the guy who won the mile was a guy named Stan Hill. Stan Hill was a senior that year at Highland High School. And I uh, really looked up to him. I didn't really know him that well. I'd met him a few times. We had a few, you know, short conversations. But the kid ran 49 seconds for 400 meters. So he was on the Highland High School 4x4 relay. This guy was amazing. Wow. And he ran a 414 mile. So he was a good miler. And I think he ended up going on a full scholarship to SMU. 
and ran at SMU. And then, you know, he retired after that. But he was a really good role model. Not only was he super talented, but he was smart. And, you know, I, I think he went on to have a successful professional career as far as I know. But so Stan Hill was a good uh, example of uh, a middle distance runner who had speed. So I was always working on my speed, 200s, short stuff, 150s, 200s. I ran 400s in relays and so forth my sophomore year. And I ran, you know, decent, uh, pretty good. Uh, but that year they had a thing called the um, National JC's uh, Track and Field Program. So every state had a, a state meet. And if you won the state meet, they take you to the national championships. So that year, my sophomore year, I won the state championship in both the 880 and the mile. Wow. And I ended up going, the, this was the junior JCs who did this, the JCs. And they took us to uh, Oregon, the University, of or the University of Oregon, of all places. Huh. And we ran at Hayward Field. So I'm only like 16 uh, and running at Hayward Field. And I'm going, what the heck? I mean, it was just, just a great trip. So there are kids from Albuquerque, from Hobbs, uh, you know, from Eunice, little towns that made this team. And we all got in cars and drove up to Oregon. And we had the, the best time in Eugene, uh, you know, just to, it was the first time I'd been to a place where it was so lush and green. So immediately I wanted to go to school there. And I'll tell you that story later, but, uh, I finished, I didn't make finals in either event, either 880 or the mile, but I ran, you know, decent. We had, it was raining. We had to run through the, the puddles and everything. And at the time, uh, the University of Oregon did not have a synthetic track. They had, I guess what they call a crush brick track. It was just basically dirt. And so that was 1968, I think that year was 1968. Okay. So at least I got a chance to see the University of Oregon campus and had a lot of fun, stayed in the dorms there. Uh, and it was really a great experience for every single one of us, uh, driving out there, drive back down the coast to San Francisco, got a chance to visit San Francisco and then come back into New Mexico. So, uh, wow. but that summer I also ran, uh, I ran 423 mile in Los Alamos. Um, uh, it, it was 1968, I think it was. And that was the year the, tri the trials, the, uh, Olympic games trials in, uh, Tahoe. Uh, Lake Tahoe. Right. So it turns out that uh, Bill Bowerman, who was the coach at the University of Oregon at the time, and this is before Nike was invented, brought a bunch of his runners down, some of his best runners from the University of Oregon. They came to Los Alamos and they stayed in people's homes and trained for the Olympics that year. So who was there was Kenny Moore. So wow. Kenny Moore comes to Los Alamos and I meet him. And I'll tell you, he's like the nicest guy on the planet. Really nice guy, very, very friendly, extremely smart. Obviously, I mean, he's written all those great books, gifted right. writer. But um, I had a chance to meet and spend a little time with him over the course of a couple of years while he was training there. And uh, he would uh, do his training runs. I never ran with him, but he did run a really good, uh, either a 10K or six mile on the track in a track meet in Los Alamos. I want to say he ran close to 30 minutes for that thing at altitude, which is pretty amazing. Wow. He would, Kenny Moore would run from Los Alamos to Santa Fe on his training runs. So we're talking about 35 miles. You got to go off the hill, down the hill, down through the valley, uh, through Pewaukee. And then from Pewaukee, it was about 15 miles to Santa Fe. But that was uh, undulating uphill. 
the entire way. And nice. people used to see him running and he would just kick it in at the end of that run, a 35 mile run. And just completely, uh, you know, he, you, you would really run hard uh, for those long runs. So he was another really uh, good example of somebody who understood the value of, you know, endurance training. And Bowerman coached him. Uh, actually, Bowerman is always trying to talk him out of running so much and so hard. And if you read uh, Bar- uh, Kenny Moore's book on, on Bill Bowerman, Bowerman and the uh, men of Oregon, he talks about Bowerman and he talks about his experience as a person being coached by Bowerman. Very good book. I'd recommend it for any runner to get a little perspective on uh, Nike, Bill Bowerman, the University of Oregon, Kenny Moore, all those people with respect to their place in history in running. But so anyway, back to uh, Los Alamos. Uh, yeah, Kenny Moore actually was a sub teacher. He was a substitute teacher at Los Alamos and a very handsome guy. So all the girls just, wow. you know, they just loved Kenny Moore. <laughs> not only was he, a, a, <laughs> you know, not only was he smart, but he was, he was very, very charming at the same time. And I also got to meet his wife who spent some time in Los Alamos at the time. And she, Bobby uh, was a, um, she was a former Miss Hawaii. So obviously, you know, he attracted beautiful women. And so she was, if Kenny Moore was a nice guy, his wife was the nicest person on the planet next to him. Really nice people. And that was true, you know, of a lot of the Oregon guys that stayed in Los Alamos. Uh, Bob Williams, who's been coaching now for 50 years. Uh, Roscoe Devine. Arnie Kavalheim, Knut Kavalheim, these guys were all either on the Olympic team or, or all Americans or sub four minute milers, all excellent, excellent runners. But, uh, so my, my sophomore year, then the next year, um, I, I was running at a more like a national class level. Uh, I ran 414 the summer after I graduated. I won the state championship in the mile down in Hobbs that year. I ran 418, which is pretty good. I mean, I should have run better, but I was being a little conservative on that one. Um, and so I won that state championship. Um, we were supposed to have had a relay team, but we got disqualified for some reason. I can't remember why. And that was my my junior year. But I ran some pretty good times that year. Uh, and ended up running 414 at the National Junior Olympics uh, that was held at uh, Balboa Stadium in San Diego, California. And Balboa Stadium at the time was the Chargers' home field. And it was a bowl, concrete bowl, downtown San Diego next door to uh, the park. And uh, they, had a, they had a synthetic track in there. It was a hard track. It was more like running on concrete than it was running on a track. And uh, the guy who won that race uh, ran four in his senior year. The next year he ran 406. His name is Kurt Minch. Wow. And to this day, Kurt Minch, I believe, was better. Steve Prefontaine. And Kurt, uh, he was in my grade, he ended up coming to school at UNM. And he lasted about one semester. He did not like <laughs> he did not like Albuquerque for whatever reason. And he went back to Hawaii, never to be heard from again in the running scene. Extremely wow. gifted runner, never ran another step in his life, as far as I know, because I never saw his name again. Anywhere, I think he just wanted to go back to Hawaii and surf. So <laughs> I think that's what Kurt Mitch did. Um, so, uh, and then that year I won the state championship in the cross country. 
And the guy who was second place, uh, his name was Steve Lynch out of Highland High School. And he was a gritty runner. This, I mean, he wasn't super talented, just really gritty. But at the time, this is pre-5K. We were running two miles. So basically, wow. it was a sprint. Two miles from cross country until maybe sometime in the 70s. I didn't realize that. And uh, it, was a, it actually was a better distance to run because you learn how to run hard the entire way. There's no pacing involved, hardly at all. You just ran as hard as you could for two miles <laughs> and prayed that you'd make it the last 800 meters. So it was more like running a mile than it was running a 5K. So I'm actually grateful that he didn't have to run 5K in high school. And, you know, in my opinion, that two-mile distance should be run a lot more often in high school. Why? Because it gives the 800-meter guys a chance to be more competitive, the shorter guys to be more competitive, as opposed to the guys who are eventually going to be marathoners who are going to be more competitive at a 5K distance. But um, I was talking to Dan Haney from, uh, he went to school at Adams State uh, not too long ago. He said when they had the two-mile distance, he would win some two-mile races. He's an 800-meter runner. When they moved <laughs> it up to 5K, he never was competitive again at that distance. But so anyway, the two-mile was the distance we ran both all three of my years in, in high school. And I think I ran, I won the, the cross-country meet, uh, state meet in my junior year and senior year. And my best time was like 9.30, uh, you know, in Albuquerque. We ran at the North Golf Course. They set up a course at the North Golf Course, and so we ran up there that year. But uh, but my my probably my best one of the best efforts of my life was my senior year. I ran 4:12 at uh, UNM Stadium on the dirt track they had there. It was a slow track. Um, wow. The synthetic track we would have been faster. We'd have been easily under 4:10. But uh, who was second was uh, Harry Mondragon. Uh, from Santa Fe High School, who uh, later, he, he died a few years ago, you know, in his 50s, I would say, or at 60s. But he was a gritty runner, uh, Native American. I'm not sure which Pueblo he was from, but he he was flat out a good runner. He ended up running like four, I think, uh, maybe a 417 mile in high school. Wow. And the other guy, it was actually, I mean, a lot of these guys were much better than I was. A guy named Bob Ayers, another guy from Highland High School. This guy, I mean, he was way better than I was. He just he just wasn't as consistent. I think he beat me one time my entire career that we raced against each other in cross country. And he just had a great day. He just clicked on that day. I'm going, what the heck? Because uh, I, I think I, my junior and senior year, that was the only race I lost in cross country over those, those two years. And I don't think my junior and senior year, I never lost a mile or any other distance uh I think I lost one eight hundred and no miles. So I was kind of my my record in high school was like thirty five three and two or something like that. Wow. So, but but one of the things about you know my uh, high school career is that my coach is pretty flexible with what I did, and I was self coach, you know, because nobody knew what to do. So basically, I started coaching myself in my junior year, and the coach said, "Okay, you go ahead and just take over the team." So I coached junior and senior years. I just coached the team, both cross country and the distance runners. I said, okay, here's what we're going to do today. Everybody says, okay, we're going to do it. So the other thing, though, I could call the shots with respect to how frequently I competed. So I didn't go out and run a whole bunch of races. I only ran, usually I'd run like two races in a track meet. We only ran like maybe eight track meets in the state. I'd run either an 
800 in a mile or an 880 in a mile or a 440 in a mile. Usually the 440 was in a relay. So I wasn't over raced. I didn't really race that much, which right. to me, you know, explains to, to a certain degree my longevity in the sport because I wasn't burned out when I got to, to college and I wasn't burned out beyond college either. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I see nowadays is that, in my opinion, a lot of these high school kids are over raced. They, they just race too much. And, you know, it's one thing to, uh, you know, say, okay, well, this is it. The kid's never going to race again after, after high school. And that might be true. But my, my um, approach was always to assume that the kid wanted to keep running maybe in college or beyond high school. And then some of the kids would want to run beyond college and become professional runners. So I always took a long-term view of my personal training as well as anybody else who I interacted with uh, on the track. Always this long-term planning kind of outlook. I think that makes complete sense. I, I think that it's, um, I think there's plenty of coaches, maybe not plenty, but there's definitely coaches out there that are looking for, well, what can I do that's going to, you know, look good on me instead of what's going to look good for this kid going forward? Yeah, yeah. I think there's, there's uh, you know, an element of that there. Um, but there's also an element, I mean, I see this in Colorado. Here's Here's what I see in Colorado a lot of the coaches are marathoners and their approach toward um, running is really more endurance oriented. And in the back of their mind, they, they want to make everybody a marathoner. Now that's a, a broad generalization, but how it, how it relates to training is that they have these kids do too many miles, I think, in my opinion, uh, while they're in high school. And I'm a low mileage kind of person for my high school kids. You know, we don't do a lot of running um, for my club. We only run three days a week. That's it. So historically, uh, my indoor program, I have or my winter program, I meet three days a week. Uh, usually it's Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Or Tuesday, Thursday, and then we have, might have a track meet on Saturday, uh, you know, one of the local indoor track meets here. But um, to a person, without exception, these kids run better uh, on three days a week than they do on five days a week. Because I ask the kids, I say, okay, what are you doing on the days that you're not training with me? And they'll say, what do you mean? I'm not doing anything because I'm doing your program. So, so that's fine. That's fine. That's great. I'm not trying to, you know, say you should be doing more. But I take these kids to these uh, national meets. We always go to Simplot games every year. And they run huge PRs on three days a week. And I know wow. pretty much that's what they do. So, again, my approach is less is better than more in almost every case, including professional runners. You know, but, uh, you know, I'll talk about that later. Anyway, so uh, back to yeah. fi finish up my, my high school. So in the winter in Los Alamos, it snowed to beat the band. So talk about clearing the track off. That's what we do, I do in Boulder. We clear the track off. You know, we're going to probably do that five or six times every year where we have to shovel the track just to have a track to run on. Los Alamos was even worse because we get dumped like three, four feet of snow because it's <laughs> right in that snow belt at the, the, the south of the you know, uh, it comes through Wolf Creek Pass and so forth, but it extends all the way down to Los Alamos into a certain extent, only a peak, but mostly, uh, you know, the Hamas Mountains. So we were always clearing track off, and I, but we were able to train in the wintertime. So my um, senior year, I was planning to run in the Albuquerque JC's indoor meet, but I got sicker than a dog, you know, running outdoors, and I was always stressed out, uh, you know, 
And so I didn't run that year. I didn't run the indoor meet. That was the only meet that we had that was indoors. But then my senior year, I was healthy and I ran, I set the record around 417, I think that year, somewhere in the 417 range, indoors at Tingley Coliseum on a 10 lap track. Talk about fun. That was, that was the most fun, I think, ex- racing experience ever on the planet. Everybody should have a chance to run on a 10 lap indoor track. And what, I mean, they had a world-class team there. Ralph Dubell, who was a gold medalist, um, top runners uh, at the time uh, when I was in high school would come into that track meet. And this guy named Ken Hansen was the race director. The guy, he, it's amazing the kind of people he would get to run in Albuquerque. So um, I ran there and I set the record. Uh, there are some good runners in that, that field from New Mexico. Later, my record was broken by Tom Hunt a couple of years later. He ran 4.15. He only ran a couple seconds faster, but he was coming in from uh, sea level. So that was an exceptional time for him to run at altitude in, in uh, Albuquerque. Right. I often wonder what happened to that track because it was a good little track, 10-lapper, plywood, high banks. The banks are like four feet high on the outside. Yeah, my dad would talk about the just the sound of it, you know, from it being yes. wood planks. Wood planks. <laughs> It was plywood, plywood track, but it was designed by uh, an engineer who designed it so it would be pretty fast for, you know, all events. High banks, but it was perfect for running a mile. So anyway, uh, that same, my senior year in winter, I was looking around for, I was desperate to find a race, but I found the USATF had a a national championship in Houston at the Astrodome. They set up a a track, it was, uh, I think it was five laps to the mile or something like that. It's huge. It was a big track. It was like, no, it was, it was a 300 meter track. But um, we, I went down there and the way they had it set up is that they only had the track for a day or, so, or two days. They had the prelims in the afternoon for the mile. And then they had the finals at seven. So I ran in the afternoon at like three o'clock and then I came back to run finals at night. Wow. So I ran four, I ran 424 in the afternoon. And of course I won my heat with that time. But there were 120 kids in the in the in the, in the uh, event, and then they took 12 to finals. So they took 12 out of 120 to finals. And that evening, I ran 4:11 uh, to win that national championship, the national USATF indoor championship, and that was 1970. Wow. So that I had a chance to run. I got a lot of attention. You know, I got a lot of scholarship offers after that. Uh, it was a pretty good time. I mean, I could run faster had I just had one race to run had some competition but but that was fun anyway so uh 411 six and my 412 six is still the 5a record for the mile new if you convert the mile to the 1600 meters right still have the record if you convert it it's like 1.7 second difference i would be 0.3 seconds faster than the next fastest person so that record i set in 1970 and as of this year, 2020, last year, I still had the record, 50 years. So um, if they don't get it this year, then it's really 50 years that I've had that record. It's the only record. Um, I think there's two still in the books from that year, or maybe the, the previous year, where they still run the same event. Right. But as far, as far as 5A is concerned, I still have that record. So it's yeah. a, but you, you know, Bruce Gomez. Bruce Gomez is the, the cross-country coach of a Taos High School. Oh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. So Gomez calls me, you know, every year. He says, hey, Rick, 
they didn't get your record. And I said, well, why not? <laughs> they should get They should have got it by now because a lot of people right. had a shot at it. And some of yeah. the best runners from, from Albuquerque Academy and Los Alamos, you know, uh, so sooner or later it'll, be, it'll go down. It's just a matter right. of time. Absolutely. But I'm proud to have had it for, for, for that, that amount of time. But anyway, so then I, oh, here's, here's the story I got to tell you. Okay. Um, so my first choice uh, for college was uh, you know, Division One or University of Oregon. Right. Uh, Pre was there, you know, that he, he he's one year older than I am. And he was there that first year and they had basically a national championship caliber team. I do not recall if they won the national championship that year, but they won the national outdoor track and field championship in 1970. Uh, so Bowerman had along the way, cause I knew him, I met him in Los Alamos. He would share some of his workouts that he gave Roscoe Devine and his milers with my coach, Bob Cox, who was the uh, track coach at Los Alamos high school. So I would look at those, those workouts. And for example, Bowerman is big on doing speed work, like 150s, 200s, 400 short stuff. And I contrasted that with, uh, what Bob Timmons gave Jim Ryan. Well, I'm convinced that Bob Timmons had no idea what he was doing because a typical workout from Jim Ryan was 32 times 400 meters. You can read this in Jim Ryan's book that, uh, that, um, Clark wrote about him, uh, 32 times 400 meters. That's ridiculous. That's, that's not training. It's abuse. Right. Nobody in their right mind would have a, a high school kid. I don't care what or whatever do 32 times 400 meters. And we're talking about not sloppy times, 72 for the first set, 70 for the second set, 68 for the last set, the third set, and 64 for the last set. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. But I actually did that workout in Los Alamos one time. I tried it. And uh, obviously the, it was it was a lot. It was too much. Yeah. Wow. Uh, but I was, I did those, I could do those workouts because, um, you know, I just could do them. Uh, anyway, so there was no, I was coaching myself, so it was, it was always going to be an experiment of one. So one, one day in my sophomore year, I decided to go out for a long run. And I decided to run from Los Alamos to the back, the back route towards the Hamas, and then drop down past Bandelier through White Rock, and then back up to Los Alamos. It was about 20 miles. And I did that my sophomore year. And I, because I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but essentially it was a marathon workout. And I was out for like three hours doing this long run. I got wow. back and, you know, nothing really changed. I got a long <laughs> run under my belt, but I never did that long again. Uh, however, later on with uh, Tony Sandoval, Dr. Sandoval and Lynn Bjorklund, who was an incredible runner. Right. She was probably one of the most talented runners ever to exist on the planet Earth. Uh, we would do 17 milers up into the um, Hamas. We'd run down first into the canyons and we'd run up uh, the trail, uh, Wahi Ridge Trail, up to Harido Mountain and then back down. And that was about 17 miles up to around 9,000 feet and back down. So we were doing long runs way back when I was in high school. And wow. they, were, they were not easy long runs. They were long, hard long runs up to high altitude. Uh, so I learned a lot what to do and what not to do over time, just in terms of, uh, you know, volume and intensity. But so back to my, my story about, uh, Bowerman. So anyway, I, uh, had run well at state, state meeting 412. I ran well 411 indoors my senior year. 
But then I went to what was essentially the national championships in um, Sacramento, California. It's called Golden West. And I ran in the Golden West championships. And I, you know, I figured, okay, I'm going to run decent here um, because of the low altitude, et cetera, et cetera. But I got in the race and I was fried. I mean, I, I was, I could just barely even run and I jogged a 424. Well, Byerman had offered me a scholarship, but I'll tell you the rest of the story. Um, <laughs> I had a visit to the University of Oregon after that, not too long after that, in the next week. It was the same week as the National Track and Field Championships, the same weekend that Steve Prefontaine cut his foot. And you can see that in the, the, the movies, that uh, right. the two movies um, where Prefontaine was doing something and he cut his foot. Well, but he still he still won the three mile championship at the nationals, you know, going away. He won going away. Right. But they basically had to drain his his track spike of the blood that he was bleeding. You know, they patched him up. But basically they had to, to drain that spike. And uh but Bowerman, I had a meeting with Bowerman the next day. And it turns out that Oregon won the championship at Drake. It was at, at Drake in Des Moines, Iowa. And so I, I made my trip up there and one of his assistants was taking me around and I stayed in the dorms and all that good stuff. Then I had a meeting with Bowerman in his office at Hayward Field that next day, Sunday. So I show up for the meeting with his assistant. He brings me there and we're waiting for a while. And here comes Bowerman and Bowerman comes in and I'm sitting across from him. He sits down at his desk and he just kind of makes some noises and he was exhausted. And he was not a happy camper because of what happened with, with Prefontaine. Even though they won the championship, he was not happy. And so he says, uh, he says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, as far as I know, we've got a meeting today, don't we? And he said, he goes, um, well, let me ask you where else you visited. What are you supposed to be visited? And I said, well, I visited Harvard, Yale, and then a couple other schools. And he right abruptly, he says, you know what? I think you should you should take take the scholarship to one of those schools. It's a better education. So I'm going. What the heck? You know, I was not prepared for that. Even though it was good advice, it turned out to be very good advice because yeah. I wasn't really running that well when I graduated that year that summer, and I would have gotten fried had I gone to Oregon and trained with Prefontaine and those guys. There's just no way I would have been able to keep up with them. But so Harvard had offered me a full complete ride. Um, oh, wow. In the meantime, yeah, and, but let me tell you about the Ivy Leagues. Uh, the Ivy Leagues have their cake and eat it too. They act like a D3 and they act like a D1 at the same time. They figured this out because they're not constrained by scholarship, um, athletic scholarships. So if you get an athletic scholarship, you can only get so much money. You can't get any more than that. But because I was not given an athletic scholarship, they could give me anything they wanted. And that's exactly what they did. Oh, wow. Yes. But the other thing, the other positive there, I didn't have to run to keep my scholarship. So I'm going, okay, forget all that other stuff. I'm going to Harvard. And so it ends up that uh, that that formula worked out really well for me because, you know, if I had a bad day, I could blow blow, blow practice off and nobody could say anything about it. They understood. So they had people there who, you know, were going to become doctors. They were well educated they were doing other stuff and they'd come to practice when they could and i was made practice but i didn't have to go to practice which is really great and uh so i ended up 
setting all kinds of records at Harvard. I set all the records except for the mile, you know, 5,000, uh, three mile cross country records, uh, freshman records, everything. And I might, wow. as far as I know, I might even have still have some records there. Um, but so for example, uh, my dad was an iron worker. Um, he died in around 2002, but he was an iron worker in the union working at Los Alamos for a company called the Zia company. And the, his union would strike frequently. I mean, they would strike. It seems like my dad was always on strike when I was growing up. So one time when I was at Harvard, um, he went on strike. So the family had no money, no money coming in at all. So I'm going, geez, what what do I do here? So I I can't get back home for summer unless I get some money. So I wrote the, uh, the finance department at Harvard, a letter. I said, Hey, I need some money. They just write me a check, you know, $2,000 check. Whenever I needed it, they just write me money. Well, it's not, they didn't have any problems with the endowment right now. Right now their endowment's almost $40 billion at the time. And they've always had the biggest endowment in the world. So it was like nothing for them to write me a check for a couple thousand dollars. So uh, that's kind of how Harvard operated. It was was pretty good because I I really could uh, do whatever I wanted there in terms of athletics. That's that's pretty amazing. But and what was it like to be, you know, a young Hispanic man at, at Harvard? I mean, I was looking at the statistics now. It's it's like eleven percent who identify as Hispanic now, but I have to imagine back then it had to have been much lower. Yeah, Seb, it was actually statistically zero. Um, wow. I, I think there were two of us um in my freshman class. So uh, uh but I'll tell you something about Harvard at the time, they were desperate for uh to get um chicanos in particular uh, they did better with afro-americans um it, with hispanics they did very marginal but i'll tell you the reason why let's say you were a smart uh, chicano from uh, albuquerque and let's say you scored high in your boards and uh you applied to harvard and you got in and this example is not unusual because you had kids from Southern California, Arizona, Texas, New Mexico who are sharp, smart. You do not want to leave your, your hometown. You don't want to go right. there. So very, very few people end up going there. Why? Because you leave your, your culture. You leave the climate. You leave the food. You leave the music. You leave everything. And it's very, very difficult for a lot of these kids to do that. And, uh, you know, for me, it was, it was not easy. Uh, because I didn't miss New Mexico and uh, I, I did miss my mom's uh, cooking, but I, I made it, you know, I did it. So, but Harvard was desperate. Um, in fact, at one point in time, I told him I wasn't coming and the guy got on the phone. He was crying. Uh, he, he like, he was like, no, you, I mean, you've got to come here. The recruiter, you know, he was begging me to come to Harvard. I said, okay, I'll think about it. <laughs> but fortunately for me, it worked out. Okay. I mean, you, you have to make a lot of adjustments going out there, but uh, that's just part of that's just part of growing up. And, right. You know, it, sometimes it wasn't the most pleasant situation, but it wasn't bad either. You know, it wasn't that bad. So um, anyway, but at my best race there, my senior year, I finished second at the Penn Relays. I ran thirteen thirty flat for the wow. three mile, and I should have won that race, but I, you know, I got distracted or something like that. But that was actually my best race while I was there, that 1330 on the track. 
so I didn't really have a bad career as a, you know, as a collegiate, but it wasn't great either. It was about what I would expect in, you know, going to Harvard. Right. Um, but then I was always determined to keep my running up, you know, again, with my long-term perspective on things. Right. And so I came back to Los Alamos in 74 and uh, continued my training. And I think in 74, what did I do in 74? I can't even remember what I did that year, but a couple of years later, I won the, I made the Pan American team and I won the uh, national cross country championship, I think in 76. Wow. Um, so I started running pretty well, you know, after that. And I made, you know, several national teams. I was second in 10,000 meters on the track behind Frank Shorter one time and behind Craig Virgin another time. And I ran against Frank. He ran, uh, we ran at Drake Stadium in Los Angeles at UCLA. I think I was 79 um, and Frank won and I was second. And then Craig Virgin, I ran against him in 77, I think it was. And he won the, um, instead of American record, he ran 2740-ish. And I was second that year. Um, but as a result of those performances on the track, I made a whole bunch of national teams uh, over the course of those years. And in 1976, I won the national cross-country championship in Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, that was good. It was a good field. I mean, all the humble toads were in there. Some of the top guys in the country were in there. So it was a very competitive field that year. Yeah. yeah. So I was prepared for that one. Uh, and uh, that's pretty. Well. I was just going to say that. I mean, that's all pretty amazing. How did, like, what was that transition like, I guess, from, from track to roads? Because you started kind of doing um, more road racing pretty soon after that, right? Yeah, no, it's running both at the same time. Um, okay. It just turns out the roads were, the reason the roads were um, attractive to me and a lot of other people is because they had a budget and they had money. So let's say that I wanted to run at uh, the Falmouth Road Race. They would pay my way out there and give me a, an appearance fee. And so it made it a lot easier, you know, and the people were so accommodating in most of these races. They loved having these people in and, uh, Usually you stayed at somebody's house, you know, and, um, you know, they take you around to different places. Uh, so the road racing was a lot easier. Track was more difficult because you had to pay your own way. Wow. The USATF didn't have money for hardly anybody until you made a national team. Then they would pay your way someplace. <laughs> but um, so, but here, going back to Bill Bowerman, this is really a great story because Bowerman had been experimenting with a waffle sole. He had been experimenting with different shoe configurations for a long time. So back to Kenny Moore and Bob, uh, Bill Bowerman, Kenny Moore would show up to the track in Los Alamos with these experimental shoes. He said, here, look at this shoe that Bowerman made for us. And I'd look at that and say, man, that is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> then he'd go, well, and then he'd go, look at this one. So Bowerman would actually make these shoes in his, in his um, home, in his garage. And that's where right. the origin of the, the, the waffle sole was. He took his wife's waffle iron, and this is true, and made that waffle sole. But, right. you know, Bowerman spent a lot of time sniffing glue inadvertently, and eventually <laughs> it, it led to his, his demise. You know, he had dementia. But a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was sniffing glue with all these experimental shoes over all those years. 
but he did come up with the waffle trainer and he did come up with the waffle racer. And these were early, early on. These were like in the early seventies or late sixties, I think. Uh, my, right. my days made perfect, but he was experimenting with these shoes at the time. But um, then Phil Knight had finished his MBA at, the, at uh, Stanford, and he was an undergraduate at Oregon. He was a pretty good miler. Like he was running, running in the 4 or 14 range, I think. But he went to Stanford, and then he did his uh, epic trip to Japan and around the world. And his idea, of course, was to manufacture shoes in Asia and then bring them back to the United States and sell them. So the first thing he did is he had an arrangement with, with um, Tiger, Anitsuka Tiger, Right. And he imported those shoes cheap. And then he would sell them through Blue Ribbon Sports. So he set up an office in Portland, and he had an office in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And he sold those um, those Tigers for several years, and along with other stuff. Like he'd sell the Tigers, then he'd sell other track-related kind of stuff through his little Blue Ribbon Sports mailing outlet. But that was kind of the precursor to what we see now with Amazon, it would, you know, because you've got stuff in the mail. Right. Uh, you just have to order it through the mail and then pay for it with a check. So um, Nike at the time was, or Phil, I should say Phil Knight was trying to figure out how to promote his product. What he did was he says, screw this. I'm going to make my own shoes and I'm going to call them a different brand. So what he did is he took every single Onitsuka Tiger shoe and replicated it and put a swoosh on it. And he figured out the swoosh, and he had a story about the lady who designed the swoosh and the Nike name and everything. Um, that's that's a separate story, but right. he, what he did is he then he copyrighted those shoes in the United States. So Tiger couldn't sell their own shoes in the United States. It was a story something like that. I might be a little bit off, but basically wow. he got the patent on all those shoes that were essentially on its suit of tiger designs. And then he started to develop shoes. He started to do research and, and, and develop shoes along with uh, Phil Knight and some other people up in Oregon. But uh, going back to the story, he had to, he had to um, promote the shoes. So he came up with this idea of just giving shoes away to top runners. And he hired um, Jeff, um, Jeff, not Jeff Galloway, not Jeff Johnson. Uh, anyway, he hired a guy to go around to the track meets and give the shoes away. And that's what exactly started, he started doing to promote his product. And you know, there are a couple of guys that are going around Los Angeles area and the West Coast giving shoes away. Then after a while, um, they decided to, we're going to formalize this. What we want to do is get create a list. And that list is going to have X number of people on it. And we're going to give products to just those guys. So the first people on the list were myself, Ted Castaneda, John Gregorio. There were about five or six of us who were on the very first Nike promotions list in 1975. Wow. So so one day, I'm, I'm living in Los Alamos at the time. One day I, I go out and look at, the, look at the mail, and there's a box for me. I said, what the heck is this? So I open the box. There's two pairs of shoes, warm-ups, uh, running singlet, running shorts. And some other stuff in there. And I go, what the heck? <laughs> well, that was the very first uh, promotional, organized promotional effort that Nike had made. They created a list. So basically what they said is whenever you need product, just call us up. We'll send it down, whatever you need. Wow. So 
we were able to get on the list. And then at that point, this is 75, Nike started to expand that list. And pretty soon they had literally hundreds of people on the list. And by the time I worked for them later on in my career, they we literally had thousands of people on that list. And we had a, a staff. The staff, when I worked for Nike back in the um, late, it was in the early 80s, we had a staff of people whose job it was to give away $50 million worth of product. Retail wow. value, $50 million worth of product. That was our, our budget. You know, it wasn't, you know, it was much less for us, but that was the retail value that we gave out. Right. And if you if you were a pretty good runner back in the day, you were on the Nike list. And then they started to expand to schools, you know, colleges. And so Phil Knight uh, figured that whole thing out way back in the 70s. You know, because he did basketball and he does baseball. He does all the collegiate programs across the United States. Right. So anyway, I was on that list. And later on, after I retired from my running career, I worked for Nike. And I was the director of their promotions program uh, out of um, Oregon. And through 1984, and then they, they cut it back and started doing more basketball. So, you know, they, they toned it down quite a bit after that. But who we had on the list was Mary Decker. Uh, Carl Lewis, Joni Benoit, and Alberto Salazar were our big four. And each one of those people got $250,000 a year at that time, wow. which was a lot of money. Can you yeah. imagine? Can <laughs> you imagine getting $250,000? What would you do with it every year? And that was just the Nike contract. Right. That's insane. <laughs> and that's, that's, <laughs> I, and I mean, I know now, like, I mean, you, the, all of these contracts are, are, um, you know, you can't talk about them, but I, I can't imagine any of the top runners making that now, even some of the sprinters. It just sounds insane. Well, you know, Nike, uh, and the reason they were able to do it is because all of a sudden it was still a Monpoc organization at the time. This is back in the, uh, in the um, 70s and early 80s through 1984. I would consider it a really a very large Monpoc organization because you knew everybody in the company. You knew, you know, everybody in, in the organization basically because we lived in two buildings and then we had a couple of warehouses, but, uh, it was small, but they started to cash flow a lot of money and they could do this. They could easily pay that kind of money to these people because they had big cash flow. Uh, all this money was coming in. And then the genesis of that was, uh, Michael Jordan, who, uh, came in about 80, mid eighties. I think he finished his college career and they signed him for you know a song back at the time but it was a long-term contract right and that's largely later on in his career why he became a billionaire uh, a lot of the nike um, this nike contract attributed to that so that and of course the, the story now of course is that nike dominates the um sports promotion scene still and Phil Knight's a bill, you know, he's worth like $15 billion. It's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh man. Yeah. There, there is, you know, it is interesting with, with, uh, all these, I guess, smaller shoe brands kind of coming out and, and trying to, you know, um, pull people away and, and, you know, we're, we're seeing some of these other little groups. Puma's got a group now on has a group. Um, Brooks is yes. just expanded, you know, and, getting you know being able to see all these other groups now try to like well we're gonna 
I guess almost take a, a, a page out of that book and we're going to start pulling these elite athletes and get our, our names out there more. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's still competitive. Um, the, the running, the running boom is you know, still growing to a certain extent, but it's a very competitive market. And I think the demographic is such that people will pay a couple hundred dollars for a pair of shoes. They will pay $250 for a vapor, vapor fly because it gives them that much of an edge. And it's just the demographic is that these kids, whether they're kids or whether they're older people, want the best equipment, whether it's microchips, whether it's footwear, whether it's, um, you know, warmups, whatever it happens to be, uh, coaching. That's where the industry's gone now, uh, high information and high technology. Well, and speaking of coaching, you know, what brought you into coaching? I mean, you said you, you always kind of were coaching yourself and, and I'm sure some of the other kids there in Los Alamos, but what brought you into, into the realm of wanting to become a coach? Well, you know, I, my, my approach was always that I wanted to do it uh, part-time, you know, as, as something I did for the community as opposed to a full-time coach. So I didn't really want to coach for a university because I know that's a 24-7 hour, 24-7 job. And I didn't want to, when I had my family, and, and Nike was the same way. Nike wanted you 24-7. That's why I quit. Plus, they didn't, they didn't pay very well. So, um, <laughs> but I wanted to be part-time and I wanted to have some fun with it and coach at the local level as opposed to at a university or even at a high school because I wanted, I had other st- stuff I was doing professionally. So that's what I did. And, uh, you know, I started coaching in high school my senior year. And formally, I was like casually writing workouts for the team and, you know, doing all that stuff for the team. And then I went to college at Harvard, didn't do any coaching then. But when I came back to Los Alamos after that, I coached at the rec center, the rec department for a couple of years. And then I coached my, my Colorado track club team after I got back, when I moved up to Boulder in 77. And we won at least one. I think we won two national championships. And I was coaching both of those teams. I was I was a player coach. Not only did I coach, but I also ran. That's all. And so we did well. We beat the Greater Boston Track Club. And we were just a ragtag bunch of guys who liked to run. And we didn't have a lot of formal anything. You know, I said, okay, we're going to meet for practice these days. Show up here. We're going to do it. And we had some really good runners. And uh, we just kind of put it together and won a couple of national championships. Then after that, um, I worked for Nike for a few, about 10 years. Uh, some of that was here in Colorado and some was in Oregon. But I started coaching again at like a sports club um, while I was in Oregon. Then when I came back to Colorado, I started coaching juniors. And then I formed a, you know, a, an adult group as well. So I've been coaching now since I was in high school off and on. And I've always enjoyed it. Now, right now, I've morphed into a sprint coach various reasons and the, the reason i think the reason why is because there's not a lot of good sprint coaching out there and the other thing is that i've had so much success as a sprint coach because i don't believe in overworking the kids i believe in optimum training which is not very seldom you do do you go very much or very hard so you kind of have to pick your fights right. and remember i mentioned a few minutes ago i only have the kids run three days a week that's it right then they're going to do some strength training and maybe some plyometrics on other days. We do a lot of that in our practices, but 
what the thing about doing three days a week is they're always fresh and they're always ready to go and they're always highly motivated because they they're rested. And so I just had my top guy run 2084 and he, he got the fourth fastest ever high school time indoors and has the second fastest time this year's in indoor 200 meters. Wow. Uh, his name is Gav, Gavin Scherr and he goes to Fairview high school. Well, I've been, he's been with me for four years and the reason why he's done so well is because I don't know, overtrain him. And uh, I give him a lot of autonomy in terms of what he does, you know, on his own. But when he comes to practice, it's a very limited practice. So I do what I call closed in practices. So all the parameters are closed. In other words, we know we're going to do four by 150. That's it. Four by under 50 meter. That's the entire workout. We know that our numbers are supposed to be 18, 17, 16, 15 on that day. We know that we're supposed to have an eight minute rest between each one of those. We cool down, we go home, we don't do any more. So I'm not a big believer in, um, you know, giving it all every day because that's just going to get you injured. Right. So what I try to do is I, I look at each athlete and I figure out what's the most that that person can do and still go home healthy. And usually it's not very much. So for example, even with Gavin, uh, one day uh, I, I frequently do this type of workout, four by 50 meters. That's the entire workout, four by 50 Sometimes Gavin will get through three. And he says, that's enough. I'm not going to do any more. So that's fine. Go home. So I give the kids a lot of autonomy in terms of how they feel. And the first thing I tell them when they come to practice is I say, look, if you're feeling good today, you can, you can step it up a little bit. But if you're not feeling so great, you're not feeling it today, I want you to run accordingly. Don't get yourself in trouble. So they have to make that decision. I say, look, you know, it's up to you as to how hard you train today. And if it's, if it's too much, then back off. So that's how I treat all my runners, whether they're middle distance runners or even Nell, my daughter. Um, Nell probably runs two-thirds of the mileage of world-class marathoners, or at least I shouldn't say world-class, American marathoners are in the 120 range plus mileage per week. And I'm not sure you saw that last article about Des Linden. She's running 150 plus miles a week now to get right. ready to set that record. Right. Well, I, I told Nell, I said, no, look, you can't, there's no way you can sustain 120 miles a week and get away with it. So we average 80 miles a week, but we make the best of that 80 miles a week. And it's worked well for her. And it's, it's worked well for essentially all the athletes that I, that I train. Low mileage, high intensity, um, but optimizing the effort over time and making sure we keep the long-term in mind as well. So, but I have to tell you a story. Um, then, then let's schedule some more time. I've got another appointment coming up here. Uh, yeah. I went to, I went to the trials, the Olympic marathon trials in South Carolina in 2000. And I had three women there, you know, that I coached that uh, were running in the trials. And Libby Hickman, who is from Colorado Springs, no, she's from Fort Collins, Colorado, uh, was the odds on favorite to make the team. But, when I got to the trials, some of the coaches started talking about what they had their, their women do. And I was shocked because they'd have an average marathon running 120 miles a week. I'm going, that's, that was shocking because my kids, are, my women were running 70 miles a week, maybe, maybe 80 miles a week at the outside. Right. But, um, so Libby Hickman was the odds on favorite to make the team. And I don't even think she finished the race or I know she didn't run well because she didn't make the team. And, she wasn't the only one, you know, I overheard a lot of the coaches talking about what they had their women do. 
And they were all running in, well in excess of 100 miles a week, which is way too much for anybody, much less, you know, these women trying to get ready for the trials. So as it turns out, who won the trials that year was Christine, Dr. Christine Clark out of Alaska. She averaged 70 miles a week on a treadmill because she couldn't run in the wintertime. I think she was in, in Alaska someplace, can't remember, someplace where it's snowing a lot. Oh, yes, I remember running. that, the treadmill. I forgot about that one. She trained on a treadmill because she couldn't run outside. It was too icy. Right. So she ended up winning trials, but she was the only one that went to the, the Olympics that year because nobody else made the A standard. So in order to send a team, you had everybody, everybody had to make the A standard. Right. And if you didn't make the A standard, then you, the only one person could go from that country. And Christine right. Clark was the only one that went that year. But wow. then I started following a lot of these coaches and, you know, still in my opinion, uh, the mileage is excessive and it's not healthy. Uh, these poor women are running all these miles and not getting anything out of it. But going back just last year at the Olympic trials, they had five women identified by almost everybody consensus as favorites. Not a single one of them made the team. In right. my opinion, they were all overtrained. And I think the women who made the team were ones that had were coming back from an injury or weren't running, weren't firing quote on all cylinders at the time and ran better than the ones who were running under 20 miles a week. So right. Jordan Hesse was injured. Well, she, she tore her hamstring in Chicago or sometime before that and tried to make a comeback and trying to run all these miles and it just didn't work. So again, uh, another example of, uh, in my opinion, overtraining in, in the subculture, you know, it's very common. Right. But anyway, so we can, uh, I got to get going now, but uh, just yeah. let me know when you're ready. We can meet again. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I got, I just have one more question for you, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, what are you listening to, to kind of get you, you know, um, motivated or just get you moving or, or just excited about the day? In terms of music? Yeah. I like, um, right now, one of my favorite groups is Lake Street, Lake Street Dive. Okay. And they're, they're a jazz kind of poppy jazz kind of group. And they've been around for a long time and they're, they're kind of indie. You really haven't heard of them too much. Yeah. They're really good. They're really good. Lake street drive out of New York city. Awesome. Then another group is called bandits on the run. And it's what they do is ridiculous. It's really, really, it's innovative. It's different. I haven't heard anything like it before. It's, it's a trio, two women and a guy. The guy plays guitar. One of the women plays different instruments and one other one plays cello. Bandits on the Run. And my favorite um, song of theirs is called Potted Plant. Go listen to it. It's, it's, it's amazing. I, I'm going to put it on and, and check it out. <laughs> yeah, Bandits on the Run. They are great. But, but the reason I know about some of these indie groups is because I've listened to the other guy I like is Charlie Crockett. Charlie Crockett's like a progressive country kind of guy out of Texas. Okay. And the reason I, I like these people is because I listened to them on 105.5, the Colorado Sound, which is, in my opinion, the best um, radio station for you know, indie groups and, and new music and local music. They're out of Greeley, Colorado. It's called the Colorado Sound, huh. 105.5. So I'll be listening to 105.5 and I'll hear a group and I go, what the heck was that? I've never heard anything like that before. And they play everything. And they play everything from jazz to country to um, 
you know, Americana roots music to pop music to rock music. But if you listen to them, they're always going to have every day something that's a little bit different that you haven't heard of before. So you know, that's that's kind of what I listen to right now. Awesome. Well, that's fantastic. I can't wait to check some of those out and, and maybe even look for that. Radio you'd like them, Seb. You, you'd like them. I'm telling you, yeah, you'd really enjoy those. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks again for joining me. I know you you got to get going here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before I let you go? Well, you know, um, I, I kind of have a, a few more stories for you. Um, you know, I, I talk about Dr. Sandoval quite a bit. I talk about Lynn B. Orkland, my next door neighbor, quite a bit. Um, both of them were like Sandoval lived down the street from me. Oh, and um, we pretty much took him under our wing when his parents got divorced in um, maybe his eighth grade year or something like that. And he ended up in Los Alamos. And the guy was ex not only was he extremely talented runner, but he's like off the scale bright in terms of just being smart. And Lynn Bjorken was my next door neighbor. She was probably as talented. In fact, she beat Mary Decker in the National Cross Country Championships one of those years in high school and single-handedly beat the Soviets back in the days of the Soviet Union in Moscow at both the 3,000 and the 1,500 meters. Wow. She was amazing. Uh, but she, um, and I coached her in high school, and then she went off to a school in um, Washington, and kind of that was the end of it, you know, as far as the track racing was concerned. She took up uh, mountain racing later on and won the Pikes Peak a couple of times. Right. But right. both of those are really incredible stories. I mean, Sandoval in particular, because he did have a really long career. I'd once again like to thank my guest for their time and thank you for tuning in. If you have the opportunity, please rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts, or just help spread the word. Music was provided by Philip Friedman. You can follow him on SoundCloud at DJ Teach. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at RunningNM. Feel free to drop me a line or shoot me an email at runningnewmexico at gmail.com if you have any questions or know of someone who should be interviewed. In the meantime, keep running, New Mexico.